Hello and welcome to Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, kinesiology professor and men's golf coach at Calvin College. And I'm Chad Carlson, kinesiology professor and director of general education at Hope College. And this is the official podcast of the Second Global Congress for Sport and Christianity, set for October 23 through 27, 2019. We're coming to you from the audio studio of Our Daily Bread. Our Daily Bread is sending out daily devotionals that are going worldwide. Millions of people are, are reading, are interacting with the material sent from this international office uh, that has the mission to make the life make life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. One of the things that we've been doing this last couple of weeks is just catching up on the World Cup. Chad, have you seen many of the World Cup uh, matches? I've watched a lot of it with, with great interest. I love watching the World Cup. It's been really exciting, and we are down to crunch time. In fact, we're down to the last four teams, and these, uh, these countries are absolutely giddy. My friend Nick Watson from England, it just I don't know if he's sleeping. He's pretty <laughs> excited to have England make it into the final four teams, and we're about ready to go. We're going to get an exciting uh, contest today and then tomorrow, and then we get to the final contest uh, very soon. You know, it's... It's fun where we are now. The entire event's been a lot of fun to watch, really. The <clears throat> sort of the global unity and and uh, how everyone comes together to watch. But especially now with these final four nations playing, all of them being European nations. In uh, as you said, England, who uh, sort of feels like soccer is their birthright. Okay, so even if they maybe didn't create the game, they feel like they're the ones that that uh, um, that had the game in their womb, so to speak. That that they 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 were. Uh, uh, the people that, that really gave us soccer in some sense. And, and now here they are finally getting back to a semifinal after so many years not reaching expectations. You know, the English take a credit credit for a lot of stuff. No, and and uh, soccer is just one of those many different things. But the truth is that a lot of the sports that we have today were made more formal, codified uh, in England. And so... There is a rich sport history and the development of sport, even though there are various forms of those games that came together all around the world at different times through different centuries. It was really largely in England. Even uh, the Olympic Games could be traced back. Pierre de Coubertin got a lot of his ideas mm -hmm. out of England. And so... It's the cradle of modern sport. Uh, absolutely. So... Uh, we're excited to take in the rest of this World Cup, and I'm sure all of you that are listening are excited as well. Yet on my mind is another football team, soccer team, that has really captivated the attention of really the entire world, and not for their play. Yeah, this is such a great story. It is. At this point, it's a great story. Um, and, of course, I'm referring to the group of 12-year-old or 11 and 12-year-old boys that are uh, currently being in the process of being rescued in Thailand. This group of soccer players, football players, and their coach uh, at some point just did what we all do, which is they went exploring. Line their bikes up along the mouth of a cave and in they went. And at this point, we do know that the rescue is down to, at least uh, at present, down to uh, maybe just one player left and the coach. And so this is this is uh, turning out to be a really good story. It, it is. It originally was not. It originally was a horror story. It was. And, uh, you know, something that seems innocent enough that in the regions of, of northern Thailand where this is all occurring, 
it's not out of the ordinary to sort of walk into caves that, that are, uh, you know, lying throughout the region and, right. and to explore and then to get caught in that can't think of anything that would be uh, any more horrifying than something like that, realizing that you're trapped. Hmm. I mean, trapped by water, unable to to get out of a cave for these 11 to 15-year-old boys and their 25-year-old coach. That's still a young guy, a young coach. Absolutely. And they were gone for a long time before any word came to them, more than, more than 10 days where they were just isolated from the rest of the world. And I, I'm sure there'll be many stories that come from this experience that will describe for us the type of life that they lived in that cave all together as a soccer team. Kind yep. of an, uh, an intriguing rescue story as well. When I first heard this, I thought, well, if a diver's already gotten there, why can't we just take him out? And then you start to investigate the complexity of this problem. Yeah, it's amazing. Two and a half miles of caves. Uh, and at several points along the way, it, the caves are completely filled with water. At other points, there's a little bit of room for you to kind of have your head above the water and maybe walk along the bottom. And there are some really small crevices that the divers have to take their tank off to be able to go in. And so it, on the first level, I'm just shocked that an initial diver or initial set of divers just kept going. Yeah. They just kept going to try to find where these boys would be because you would think you're a mile in, you're a mile and a half in. You'd think, well, this is this is a dead end. This isn't the direction that they went. It's and truly they went. blind faith. It really is. And when you think about what you're alluding to, this, this sort of 15-inch space that they have to get through, that's only partway in. Right. For the divers, for the rescue team to go through there and to continue to believe, okay, I'm going to go through this 15-inch area, mm-hmm. which means I'm taking my, my gear off, most of right. my gear off to get yeah. through and believing that they are still in there farther. Right. 15 I, inches could, could swallow up in, in, at least that would be my thinking. If I'm going through there into the cave, how am I going to be able to get back out of this area? I have a hard enough time just thinking about, I mean, being a little claustrophobic. I just came back from uh, New York City where I climbed to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. Mm. I had to take a lot of breaths along the way, <laughs> partially for the climb, but also because that just confined space. Yeah. It's a tiny little circular stairway. And I was fine until I sort of reached another person. Right. Somebody that was going up ahead of me. And then I realized there were people behind me. There were people ahead of me. And that sort of sense that, uh uh-oh, what direction am I going to go? And I'm just, I know these cavers, and that's why I marvel so much. These these divers are uh, prepared to do this. In fact, they they do this as a recreation. They do this in some ways for a living uh, because they're called upon to do these sorts of rescues some unbelievable skills that they have and some unbelievable abilities. And, and maybe over time, being in situations like that makes you a little bit less uh, fear, fearful. It Maybe it makes you a little bit more confident knowing that you've done something like this before. And yet this type of rescue still, although it's using skills that maybe have been developed by the rescuers in the past, right. there still is an element of the unknown here that it's it's just, it's new, it's novel. It's not like... Um, you know, training sessions. This is this is reality. You're going through this area. You're going in two and a half miles without being able to see anything, hoping, believing, trusting that what you're doing this for matters and that they are in there yet. 
And it really speaks to that human spirit, not only in the moment, but also in the preparation. We're the kind of people that like to be good at things. Something in our human nature wants us to develop, to grow, and often that pursuit of excellence ends up in our recreational activities, like diving, scuba diving, which is a a very specific skill in and of itself. Caving is also a very specific skill. And sport, where we spend a lot of time trying to develop those skills and prepare ourselves, in this case, uh, to prepare themselves for a moment where they're actually needed. This, uh, This rescue explains or speaks to this sort of human spirit where everyone pulls together and makes uh, the conscious effort that we are going to we're going to accomplish this task and i think the whole world is praying for this process and uh, i'm sure the divers are praying as well and the boys um, as well just working through this idea that um, there is hope there is a possibility and i think there's some great uh, great lessons for us to learn there yeah there absolutely are we're seeing now sort of the ends the the light at the end of the well, the cave, I suppose, for, right. for these boys. And, right. um, the beauty of that, coming to rescue, knowing that, despite the odds, knowing that um, they had been in there for so long without any contact, and now the fruits of, of all the efforts of everyone coming together to help them is, is, is really bringing them back to life. I'm just imagining the conversations because once they got there, they realized that uh, several of those boys at, at 11 and 12 years old don't even know how to swim. None of them, of course, had ever had scuba gear on. And so now you're trying to, without practice, right, in a dry circumstance, convince them that we're going to be spending the next three, four, five hours in this journey. You'll be wearing something over your head. Uh, It'll be dark, uh, potentially pitch dark. Every time that you go into the water, you'll be, um, the, the, the muddy water will uh, keep your vision from being much help at all. And you're just gonna have to follow. Uh, and the way that they're doing this, and I know they went through a number of different possible uh, rescue scenarios, but they ended with this idea that uh, each person would be brought out by two divers, one leading and one following, and that lead diver actually holds the tank for the player for the kid who's on his way out. So that kid is kind of free. And the divers, you, you can't wear uh, fins or anything like that in this circumstance. So they're essentially swimming and walking their way out of this out of this cave. And at any moment, if if the young boy panics or has has some just disorientation, it could completely ruin the uh, the attempt and. So far, everyone has made it out. Uh, we That's do what's need- so amazing yeah. about this. And one of the amazing pieces of it is that the disorientation you talk about. We're talking about 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys who have been stuck in this cave since June 23. Right. There's going to be some disorientation. Man. That's the funny thing, that they have been able to follow these, these rescuers even though they can't swim, <laughs> even though they're going to be further disoriented even though they've never had this gear on before, and I've scuba dived a few times in my life, it's, it's different. It is a, it's a very different experience to breathe inside mm-hmm. those, that apparatus, um, and it's one where 
if you have learned how to scuba dive, you you learn that regulation and control of breathing is an important part, and people practice it over and over again to be able to be calm under pressure and to be able to handle sort of the different changes that happen um, as you go through the process. And in this circumstance, none of that was possible. They just had to convince these kids, this is, this is our way out, and you're going to have to trust the... There is one uh, certainly sad story that happened with this. A rescuer um, at some point along the way was delivering oxygen tanks, I believe, and his um, his oxygen ran out, and he was a retired military, I believe. Yeah, I think it was the equivalent of a Thailand Navy SEAL. Yeah, and, um, and he didn't make it. It's too bad. Among all the positive coming out of this story now, specifically with the rescue efforts, knowing that uh, there was a casualty uh, leaves us pause. Yeah, so we continue to pray for this rescue. Um, We're excited that uh, all the news is positive. It's one of these rare things where the entire world really is paying attention to this news as it goes, and it's unfolding as we speak. Who would have thought this is all happening to a soccer team that's not in the World Cup? We're (laughs) talking about this team that's bringing people together across the world, and it's not. Well, over the, over the past couple of podcasts, we've uh, described ways in which um, we see the intersection between sport and Christianity as part of this podcast that's leading up to the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. And uh, it was a few weeks ago that Brian and I discussed um, sport as Christianity's good teammate and vice versa, the connections between the two as teammates, the ways in which sport uh, uses in a, in a positive way, uses Christianity, and Christianity uses sport in order to further their own purposes. There's a few other things that, that Brian and I have listed uh, that we'll get to over the, ne- over the coming weeks um, in terms of sport and Christianity and the relationship between those two cultural elements. Two of them that sort of go hand in hand is the connection between sport and virtue, sport and vice. So when we talk about Christianity, a lot of times what comes up or or what naturally flows from that topic is the idea of Christian ethics, Christian virtue. How are Christians to live? How are they to act? How are they to behave? And in sport, we oftentimes talk about the connection between character and our participation or our spectatorship of sport. That sport, um, if it doesn't develop character, it certainly reveals character. And so what type of Christian character do we see in sport um, that's good? And in what ways is it bad, Brian? Yeah, when we start on a topic like this, I I get a little uncomfortable partially because the the tendency for us to go one way or the other on sport, and I think it's far more complex than we uh, describe it. And uh, in terms of virtue that can be developed through sport and vice that maybe results from sport, in both cases, we're uh, assuming that it's sort of a one-to-one result, meaning if I participate in sport, then I will acquire these virtues. In fact, that is a pretty strongly held belief by just about everyone. Uh, The idea that sport builds character or makes us better people (coughs) has been... um, actually pushed pretty uh, aggressively by sport organizations, by schools, um, and very often that has uh, very little 
uh, evidence to back it up. There's also the other side where people will talk about how sport is destructive, how it turns you into a particular type of person, how t particular sports make you um, more likely to do bad things. And again, in these circumstances, if we l just look at the power of sin, the power of sin has effect over athletes and power of sin has effect over non-athletes. And so this idea that sport can be used one way or the other is at first, uh, for me, a, uh, it kind of push pushes us in the wrong direction. Sport is something, from my perspective, that is a part of human life, that is there to be delighted in and enjoyed. And because of the passions of it, there is a possibility of both great uh, development and also um, real uh, negative consequences. And so I think at first, uh, the idea of using sport from a Christian perspective is, is something I, I want to just put as a maybe a secondary object, a secondary outcome, because we participate in sport not for those reasons first. Those boys didn't go into the cave because they wanted to build their character. They were exploring, and they play soccer because they love to play. Uh, and when we get to the World Cup level, some of those things have leveled out, right? So it's become less of an avocation and more of a vocation, which changes the way that we think about sport. But I do think that uh, in this blend, it's helpful to continue to remember why we play. And uh, a big part of why we play is that we just delight to live on this earth that God created for us uh, in ways that are creative and fun and in some cases helpful. So if we were to ask, you know, so many of the, the the players in the World Cup right now, especially in the semifinals, some of these guys. Well, why do you why do you play soccer? Yeah, the answers would likely be mixed, right? Yes. But, um, and and yet, I'm not sure that we would hear from them. I I play soccer, or I ever played soccer to develop my character. And yet, so much of what they do is watched, right? And so we can talk about sport, and um, we can talk about the fact that any virtue or vices that are developed from that are secondary and sort of come along the, the, the coattails of our participation in soccer, for instance, or in, in any sport. But um, they're watched. They they're are. role models. And, uh, and so, so much of what, what they do, how they behave, does matter. So what are, what are the things that we notice in, in, from big-time athletes as Christians that should make us excited and, on the other hand, should give us pause and really make us feel a little bit uncomfortable? Sure, and we can probably start with the uncomfortable parts, particularly in sport where we see um, the use of, um, you know, dirty tactics. Right. Um, that happens all the time. When I describe sport, sometimes I, I think about the bad, which um, is, is difficult for us to um, quantify until we get into it. And so we'll describe that in just a second. But the ugly, you know, you're, they're always the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly of sport, everybody knows. And so when FIFA cheats, sure. uh, right? Yep. When there's corruption, deep level of corruption, when there are um, very serious violations within a contest, 
Sure. Uh, those those are things that we can all sort of condemn outside the rules. The egregious that, that stuff, sh- right? The, the egregious the stuff. Doping, the doping, yeah. Sure, the examples of that steroid use when it's illegal, all those sorts of things that, I mean, everybody sort of coalesces around the same space and says, you know, that's bad. But it gets tighter when we look for the sort of this line between the good and the bad. And, and let's just start right here with diving. And, and I don't mean the <laughs> Wait a diving. Minute. You're not talking about exactly. scuba diving. We're not back to that. We're not back to scuba <laughs> diving. But in my in, and actually, uh, it was more prevalent, at least in my own viewing of the World Cup, in the early stages than it has been later. It seems to have just settled down a little bit. But one th- one thing we get with the World Cup are um, HD cameras in yeah. every space uh, where we can go back and take a look. And when a person dives, and, and if you don't know what we're talking about in football or soccer, when, uh, when a person goes to the ground, grabs some part of their leg. Like they've been shot. Writhing in pain. Yes. Right. And then the camera go, rolls back and you realize that there was actually zero contact between themselves and the opponent. None at all. That would be called diving, right? That's called, you know, uh, deception to try to, to um, you know, get the call to go in their particular direction. So I think I, I read last night, I, this can't be true, but that someone studied how much time Neymar Jr. spent on the ground. Okay, let's hear it. During his last game, 14 minutes. <laughs> There's no way that's possible, right? There's no way. Now, he, he is one of the worst. That's a miracle that he can walk. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's the power of the Lord right there. Just uh, he's, he stands up and walks after those horrendous injuries. And so clearly everybody knows it's happening. It's, it's actually I'm, I'm a little surprised that these guys are not laughing. It, it, they do learn drama quite early. And their ability to fake an injury to try to get a call in a particular direction. It, it repulses a lot of people. And, Especially uh, Americans. Americans, there, our sensibilities are thrown off for sure when we see that sort of deception. And we think, oh my goodness, this is, this is fake. This isn't, um, this isn't what sport is meant to be. All right, soccer fan Chad. So is it? This is a vice, huh? You're saying that this is a vice? I, no, actually I I'm not. I'm defining this. I'm, I'm throwing it out there. You can choose. Is this a vice or is this a virtue? Well, I wouldn't call it a virtue. All right. But I'm not sure. I'd, I I, th- I think I see the logic behind why players are doing this, that soccer is, is a sport that's very hard on the lower extremities specifically, right? It's really hard on your legs, and there's a lot of movements, and the soccer can become a defensively dominated sport very easily. It's so hard to score goals that uh, I get the sense that, that players are diving, are, are flopping in order to get calls that would give them a better opportunity to score goals, realizing it's so difficult to do it anyways in the flow of play with defense that any bump um, they will exaggerate in order to try to get a free kick or a penalty kick that would give them, therefore, a better chance of scoring. I see the logic. And scoring in, in soccer is... Um, so different than other sports where, you know, baskets are scored, touchdowns are scored, uh, runs are scored, but uh, nothing at such a small level as the, the goal in soccer. Right. In fact, you know, so much so that uh, announcers were remarking on the fact that this World Cup um, may have gone through the entire group phase without any 0-0 games. Wow, that's They're amazing. scoring in every game, which right. is different from most World Cups. Right. And so scoring is at a premium. Right, very few goals are scored, and so offensive players specifically, 
I think, um, are trying to do all that they can to put their team in the best position to score. And so often that involves, especially when the offensive player is outnumbered when he has the ball at his feet, means falling, right. means diving. Right. Again, I, I see the logic of that, especially for players that are, are either undersized or, or uh, um, under-athletic, <laughs> less athletic, right? That this yeah. is this isn't a way of, of catching up. I think not only is the logic there, but also the context. And so when you think about the number of NFL football referees and com- and the size of the field, and compare that to uh, football around the world or soccer, uh, the actual amount of space that has to be covered and the angles that can be seen. And the same number of players in both of those games. Right. And so uh, a far fewer number of, of eyeballs, really, on um, on the action. And so the ability for one person, particularly, to be able to see what's going on uh, with the help of a few people that can't actually go on the field that are just sort of roaming the sidelines, it sort of sets it up for... Um, someone to miss the call. And so if your eyes don't aren't there right at the right time, you, your brain tells you to look at the context. And if in that context someone is hurt, you assume contact was made. Right. And we get to the point where, at least as spectators, we believe that there are a lot of boys crying wolf. Absolutely. So to speak, that we see a player going down so often writhing in pain doing somersaults or rolling over in the ground as if the world has ended and then they jump up as soon as they get the call and so when we actually do see players get injured the difficulty is we don't believe it so in my sport philosophy class I pose this um, this and scenarios like this and I ask my students if if this is a way to win soccer games if this is helpful which I think we would assume it is unless there were some sort of backlash by the the officials, uh, then why wouldn't we coach this? Yes, a very good question. Thanks. And I'm not sure there's a, that I have a the, good the, answer. The benefit of being the professor in the class is I get to ask <laughs> the questions. I don't have to answer You don't them. have to answer them. Right. right. That's up to the students to answer them. Exactly. And that's part of the difficulty of justifying play acting or, f- or falling or flopping or diving, whatever you want to call it, is can we, do we want to teach this? And it seems to me that um, it's a worthy question to ask, uh, but it's one that's quite uncomfortable to most people. When you take it to this level and you start thinking, uh, is this something not only that we want to either accept or condone or reject, uh, that's, that's sort of a first level. But then the next level is, now that this happens and it does have an effect on the game, is it some sort of violation of the ethics or code of the game, or is it part of the game? Yeah. Because deception is a part of every sport. Mm-hmm. Physical deception, trying to get you to look one way while I'm doing something else over here, is used all the time. And yet psychological deception is reserved for card games, which we use, you know, we do it all the time. Somehow when it crosses into sport, we, we feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. We certainly do want to um, allow deception and encourage deception in our sports, and yet it's not, it may not be this type of deception that we want to be able to deceive our opponents, but we're not necessarily in in the game of seeing who can deceive the officials best, or at least that, that may not be what we want to teach. So we think about the, the principle of universal, uh, of universal universability, 
here. That's that, a big fancy word you got there. And I had a hard time getting it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that for anything that we do in order to justify that, we'd have to say, I would be okay if everybody in the world did that. And it seems like maybe everybody in the soccer world... It sure seems like everybody's doing it. ...is play acting. Right. Everybody's doing it. And some of these teams are so good with set pieces now, that is, once you've received a penalty call and you get a free kick, they're so good with these and scoring opportunities. The percentage of scoring goes up incredibly when you have a free kick or a penalty kick. Right, That it does help the game. And yet we want soccer, I think you would say to your students, even if this isn't an answer to your your, your $60,000 question, we, we don't want soccer to be about who's the best at flopping. Right. We don't. We want, um, we want the skill elements of the game to uh, take center stage. The skill elements having to do with foot and ball as opposed to theatrics. Correct. Or, and speed and strength yes. and, and all these different uh, aspects of putting the ball in. Um, and yet it is a sport. And the ultimate goal, certainly in a, uh, a sport like the World Cup where it's either win or go home, uh, can very likely come down to the skill of deceiving the official, the sure. referee. So in in uh, in this circumstance, if we push it and continue to push it in a World Cup environment and you have a breakaway and you have this chance to be able to uh, make a goal, someone comes in, uh, thwarts your effort. Uh, it was either a, a legal tackle or uh, an illegal tackle, but the, the line is very thin. And so along the way, you end up falling to the ground. Uh, would we say, as a coach, to a player, to a team that uh, wants to elevate foot and ball techniques, speed and strength, those things that we said, would we say, stay in your feet, play that out as best you can, and be prepared for the next action in the play? Uh, or would we say, that was your opportunity for us to win the game? And you blew it. <laughs> you blew it. Exactly right. If you blew it, you've and got you all it. the fans what back home. What were you thinking? Yes. Yeah. And there may be some, you know, I'm not sure that I would want to say that, that soccer players, in the moment especially, are thinking from this utilitarian perspective where that's another big word, but we're saying is the greatest good for the greatest number. Right. I'm not sure that we're making those types of, you know, quantitative decisions in the heat of the moment. And yet you're thinking about, you know, what you represent as a, as a player. And, and at the World Cup, each one of these players represents a nation of millions of people. I think the smallest, jeez, oh, what's Belgium? Are they are they 10 million uh, yeah, residents? Yeah, and so right. these are these are large groups of people that are following. And so maybe you're making a decision that's that's to try to help. You're doing whatever it takes to help your your your, your country. Your country, absolutely right. And, you know, the Apostle Paul says, "Use all means <laughs> to help some." Right? That's not a perfect parallel, but the idea that we're making a decision based on the greatest good for the greatest number that we know that we're close to, and so. What these soccer players are trying to do, the goal is to, to score a goal. And and from a behavior perspective, in terms of virtue and vice, what I've been a little bit surprised at is when players score, I'm not seeing a whole lot of... So in in um, the NBA, in American football, a lot of times when players score, we'll see them point up to the heavens. We'll see them, them give some gesture, whether it's um, real or not, whether right. it's genuine or not, right. some gesture towards the heavens, towards Jesus Christ or, or God or, or whatever else. I haven't seen a lot of that 
from players when they've scored in the World Cup. In fact, I don't think I've seen any of that. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not as if it hasn't been there. In the past, um, we have seen very overt uh, examples of Christianity uh, in sport and in soccer, but for some reason, um, we're not seeing it as much this year. And I don't know why that is, and I'm not sure if that speaks to the religious background of the players changing or being different at this World Cup than at previous World Cups or in this sport different from other sports. Uh, because one thing that I still see a lot of is when a player enters or exits the field, I see a player crossing the crossing himself, action, correct. Um, identifying that entering the pitch is a sacred space and, and doing the same thing while exiting almost as if to say thank you for this experience in this sacred space as if we've walked into a, a sanctuary and then left a sanctuary. Yeah, and uh, I think we're, we're leaving our last conversation just a little bit there, and I think we might want to pick this one up. But one thing I think that we can uh, say as we, as we wrap up this conversation about verse, uh, vice and virtue is that it is really important to unpack the details of a particular sport and the context before we uh, arrive at a conclusion in terms of what is good and what is bad. Um, we have obviously those those egregious violations that we can all agree on, but I think beyond that in sports, sport being sort of its own sub-reality means that we do things in sport that we wouldn't do in our regular walk-around worlds. And we have to sort of figure out what those things are and what, are, uh, what, are, what in those things are relevant to the game uh, and how the game ought to respond to those. Uh, so in the case of diving, uh, soccer as an entity could do things. It could uh, increase the number of eyes that are available to watch for those things. It could punish uh, diving using HD cameras, uh, which has been uh, experimented with. So there's all sorts of different possibilities or ways to change these things. But at present, right now, that is a it's a it's a worthy tactic uh, for advancing in the World Cup. I think rather than have a knee-jerk response to it, we should first try to understand it and then figure out kind of where we're coming from from a faith perspective uh, and what in our consciences and, and what the Spirit tells us to do in, um, in circumstances like this. So we've tried to provide some sort of context today to understand maybe that, that feature of, of soccer behavior that seems so repulsive, at least to, uh, to Americans, but to a lot of fans around the world. We try to provide some context that I think might help a little bit. Adding on to all of that is our partisanship, that soccer is necessarily a, a partisan game, like so many of our team sports, where maybe it's me, Brian, cheering for Team X, you cheering for Team Y, who are playing head-to-head, -head, what I see as flopping or diving or um, poor behavior on your team's part, you might see as um, an, a, a reaction that's necessary to the hard tackling of my team, for instance. And so... There's some context having to do with the way that we see this from a non-objective point of view. We call that situational ethics. Situational something, ethics. Yeah, yeah, and, something um, like um, it's it amazing the, uh, the how different perspectives uh, change the way that we and who we're rooting for makes a huge difference in the way that we describe things. And the the question would be, I guess, for us, is, is that something we need to root out? in sport? Is that something that we need to work against or swim against in this yeah. particular circumstance? It's been another deep philosophical issue whether we want partisanship to be a part of, of sports, jingoism, nationalism specifically, sort of these over, 
over tendencies to, to root for our team and to root against another team, for instance, as opposed to being able to just appreciate the beauty of what's going on. But nevertheless, with, with the World Cup and, and even with the soccer team being currently being rescued in Thailand, what we're seeing is um, some sort of unity, at least the eyes of the world are on these certain events that give us a platform to be able to talk about deeper issues. And so we've tried to use this World Cup, for instance, and the rescue in Thailand to be able to talk about issues of sport and faith and issues of specifically vice and virtue today. Um, hey, when we see score, goals scored today, and we will, it's a knockout game, we'll have to see at least one goal scored in the game today. It might be a penalty kick. It might be. How are we to uh, to make sense of the behavior of the athlete? How are we to make sense of the behaviors that got the athlete to the point where he is to score, and then his reaction? What's virtuous about it? What might be Vice. What do we want to avoid? Nevertheless, the eyes of the world will be on exactly what's happening there. As the eyes of the world are on the World Cup and our eyes and the eyes of the world are also on the continued rescue efforts, uh, we draw this podcast, this edition of Dig Deep to a close. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll continue to uh, explore different issues of sport and Christianity in future episodes. As always, you can Visit the site of the Global Congress at the Calvin College website. That's C-A-L-V-I-N dot E-D-U slash events slash 2GCSC. Thanks very much for listening.